0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 13th, 2021. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, here to tell you that our November issue we are closing today and we'll be sending to the printer, and we are very proud of it. It's one of the best issues we've ever done. It is a special issue dedicated to wokeness. Woke the threat is the overall issue um, Portmanteau for for the package. Um, Some of the articles in it include Sam Abrams and Jack Wertheimer on the woke threat to America's Jews, Wilfred Riley on the whiteness of wokeness, uh, David Zucker, the director of Airplane and uh, the writer of Airplane and the director of Scary Movie and other uh, great comic. Masterpieces on the threat to comedy from wokeness. We have Michael J. Lewis of Williams College on the language of wokeness. We have Barry Weiss on what needs to be done to combat wokeness. I'm sure I'm leaving a couple of people. Troy on medicine and wokeness. And um, uh, Jim Meggs on the original woke uh, the, the the original expose of wokeness from an academic setting, Alan Sokol's famous hoax article uh, about how um gravity is a is a construct uh, from nineteen ninety six and how um and how it he won the battle because everybody recognized the thing that he was making fun of and lost the war because everything that he was making fun of has come to pass in the twenty five years since. anyway, we're going to be talking about it over the course of the next month. Hopefully we'll have a bunch of the uh, writers of these pieces on the podcast to talk about their specific findings and their specific analyses. Uh, this, some of it should be up maybe later today, maybe tomorrow. Um, I commend it to your attention at commentary.org where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe to read woke the threat. I can't, stress this enough this is remarkable stuff that we've produced here and that you really need to read the person who is shepherding that into print is my colleague executive editor abe greenwald hi abe hi john uh with a column in this issue though not part of the woke package senior uh, writer christine rosen hi christine hi john and holding up the fort everywhere else associate editor noah rothman hi noah hi john Okay, guys, um, there is an interesting study that is out today from UCLA or yesterday, late yesterday, from the UCLA uh, Department of um, Public Health, actually, uh, on the public health effects of the pandemic that suddenly go in a direction that we haven't seen before. Uh, I'm I'm quoting here from Deadline, which is not ordinarily a source I would use for medical information, but it's where I saw it first. Newsflash. Americans drank more, smoked more, watched more TV, and exercised less during the recent pandemic-related business closures and stay-at-home orders. The study published in the Switzerland-based journal Nutrients confirmed that Americans largely settled into sedentary routines during the height of the pandemic. Quote, we found that regulations to restrict non essential activities and stay at home orders during the pandemic have had profoundly negative impacts on multiple lifestyle behaviors in American adults. According to a statement from Dr. Li Wei Chen, UCLA Fielding School of Public Health Associate Professor of Epidemiology and lead author of the study, as bad as these changes have been for all Americans, They disproportionately impact racial and ethnic minorities in the U.S. who already bear a higher disease burden from COVID-19. Researchers conducted a survey of representative samples of American adults from across the country in October, asking them to report on lifestyle behaviors such as exercise time, time spent in front of a TV or computer screen, alcohol consumption, cigarette smoking, and fast food consumption. According to the survey, respondents reported a 31% drop in exercise time. Well, screen time increased by 60%, alcohol consumption jumped by 23%, and smoking increased by 9%. Okay, so we were talking about this when the pandemic was raging, and, and public authorities were doing absolutely psychotic things, like removing basketball hoops from playgrounds, and in the case of my own neighborhood and my own city padlocking playgrounds to prevent children from from going and playing in playgrounds on the grounds that it would just be a place where teenagers would go congregate and therefore everybody had to be prevented. If you remember the line that was said, it was stay at home, but go for a walk. You can go for a walk, but otherwise stay home. And it's interesting that public health that this was the message of you know public health authorities as well as politicians, precisely because for the last forty years, we have been hectored and hammered and yammered and yelled at about how we don't exercise enough and how what we watch too much t v and how we're uh, excessively sedentary. Obesity is a problem. You need to get out more, you need to exercise for thirty minutes a day. You need to get straight you know you need to like raise your heart rate to eighty five percent of its full capacity for thirty solid minutes simply to lead an ordinarily healthy life. And then every one of these people basically turned around and said, sit in your home, watch television, 24 hours a day, eat, you know, order in from Uber eats, drink, smoke, and do nothing because otherwise everybody is going to die. This kind of mixed messaging, which was, is the highlight, uh, you know, is, is is the, is the, the key element of public health messaging during the pandemic. Um, is now gonna is now gonna show some real world consequences over over time that we haven't even really begun to calculate since this study uh, detailed people's behavior in October of 2020. Now maybe people you know got out more after you know, but of course there was the winter surge and then there was the Delta variant. I don't know. Anyway, Abe, as our resident exercise kills person, perhaps yes. you, you view this with um you view this with a certain amount of um, schadenfreude.
1: Well, first all, I want to say, you know, this the, the 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 data here doesn't at all comport with uh, uh, anecdotal experience. Everyone I know during this pandemic got out. They exercised. They stopped drinking. They didn't smoke at all. You know, Um but- uh, no, this is like uh, very uh, straightforwardly, obviously uh, the case. This is this is what happened, and I and I want to note that um, while playgrounds were being locked, while you couldn't go to uh, religious worship, uh, liquor stores were open the entire time. That was a that was a big feature uh, of 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 the of, of those businesses that um, stayed open here. Well, one of the interesting things about about the article though. Um, is that note about how this disproportionately impacted minorities. Uh, This gets into a little bit of the unfalsifiable problem with such claims, um, because it is also claimed that if people had to go to work during the pandemic and leave their homes, this too would disproportionately impact uh, minorities. Uh who had to work in uh less sort of pandemic safe jobs so that that's just a detail to me that jumped out of this that it, it's a sort of it's a never ending feature of of every side of every discussion.
0: well, the thing is that the health crisis in the United States involving personal the things that people control in their health right meaning caloric intake. Alcohol intake, nicotine intake, um, and you know the question of whether or not you whether or not you exercise your heart. You know, you get cardio, you you exercise your heart so that it does not get heart disease. All of these have been shown repeatedly over time to disproportionately affect minorities. That is to say, minorities die younger. They have much much. They have they have many more incidences. Uh, you know, disproportionately of the diseases of sedentariness and, and, um, and bad, uh, not bad, but let's say, uh, uh, uncareful personal conduct, meaning diabetes, heart disease, uh, the things that are, are often preventable or at least mitigatable by personal behavior and personal
2: control. But, but there was such a contrast over the last year and a half between, so, so that message, so 40%, of African Americans in this country are obese. About thirty percent of all adults in America are obese, but the most obese group by race is African Americans. The major cause of death for African Americans in this country, heart disease, is number one by far. Secondary is cancers, you know, that are that are often, you know, the result of smoking, drinking, whatnot. That health crisis has been very clear to public health professionals for a long time. People don't like to, to tackle it because it's it's not politically correct to say you're eating poorly and you should drink less and smoke less because it's killing you. But at the same time, at post George Floyd, there was this other weird messaging completely devoid of, of fact about how if you walk out of your door, if you're an African-American in the U.S., you're going to get killed by police. Statistically, not true. But it, it was used to sort of energize people to come out and protest, et cetera, et cetera. But the true problem here with COVID in particular is that obesity was a major comorbidity. The people who had the, suffered the worst outcomes and, and tragically died more often were those who came in to the hospital presenting with diabetes obesity lifestyle diseases as we call them were um, and are
0: were and are
2: yes are and, and continue it's still a feature even, of the yes. of
0: the delta variant death.
2: exactly exactly so that's those conversations again this is this goes to this broader theme we've touched on many times over the last year and a half about mistrust in public health professionals so public health professionals were, were you know padlocking playgrounds but telling you to go out on the street and protest the fact that if you're black you're going to get shot by a cop when you leave your house like this is not this is not rational. So then people don't make decisions based on rational choices. And I think this speaks as well to the vaccine hesitancy among some of these groups. The idea that the real danger to you is is some of the choices you make on a daily basis. And I say this with sympathy because I think a lot of people struggle with this uh, aspect of personal health. um, And they live in neighborhoods where they probably don't have a lot of health options. They don't have a lot of time to cook good, healthy food. All of those things are genuine problems that need to be tackled. But in terms of COVID and in terms of the the sort of post-George Floyd race discussion we've had in this country, those are completely avoiding this major issue for the African-American community.
0: You know, in, um, in his book, The Road to Wigan Pier, George Orwell, you know, who wrote um, brilliantly about the uh, effects of Poverty and the lifestyle of poverty on on the, on the British working class points out that in you know in, in these in working class communities where where people you know coal mining communities and real hard industrial communities in the 1930s in in Britain would get visited by these do gooder upper middle class ladies who would come in to explain to them how to eat more healthily. And how to have vegetables, and how to can veg, and do this and, and do that. And Orwell says, uh, in one of the one of the great passages that explain why we still talk about him 75, 70 years after his death, says, "This you know uh, array of quacks as he quacks and do-gooders uh, fail to understand the elementary fact of a very hard scrabble life, which is that." People want to eat things that taste good because it is one of the few pleasures that they have and going to them and saying, you know, what's really better for you is to eat something that's good for you rather than tastes good for you. I bring that up only to say that we have spent now 18 months under the sway of people who essentially take this attitude and have retailed it to America about how to behave in ways that are good for you, better for you, um, because we know better and we, you know, we we know this and and obviously under, under understandable conditions, because there was an effort to see what could be done to make sure that the pandemic did not turn into an event like the Spanish flu or, you know, where hundreds, uh, tens of millions of people were killed worldwide. Um, and yet, the net effect was essentially to create uh, panic and uh, controlled behavior among people who were already controlled that it is people who, Do pretty much sort of eat well or carefully or, you know, follow the rules and are worried about the effects of smoking or don't drink too much, you know, who live their lives in a cautious fashion in health wise, health wise, who were driven to transports of paranoia, terror and fear by uh, by this by this insistence on this regime and that the people who really needed the message the most we're, of course, the people who are just going to hear at least, because it's like, my life is chaotic and unpleasant enough already. You're actually now going to come to me and tell me how I'm supposed to go day right. to day? Shop you a know farmer's what my market. life is yeah. like day to day? I mean, yeah. granted, these are not coal miners. Americans are not coal miners in England in the 1930s, which is really what, what Orwell was writing about. But the condescension that was being displayed um, is exactly the sort of thing that will lead people to do the opposite of what they are being preached at. And when suddenly you develop a favorite disease syndrome, like it's like one of those things are a favorite condition syndrome, where suddenly there is something so pressing that everything has to fall, you know, in its path. You know, it's like when there are sort of panics, the moral panics, right? Like the satanic child abuse panic of the early 1980s. And suddenly due process, free speech, the rights of the accused and all of that have to fall away because satanic clowns are raping children in the basements of daycare centers. And we have to do everything we can to stop it. And in those moments, all kinds of protections, civil rights protections and stuff go out the window. Because what are you supposed to say? No, you're not supposed to stop satanic clowns from raping children in, in, in day, daycare center basements. And the same thing happened here, which is like we have to stop COVID by any means necessary. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to lock playgrounds. We're going to take basketball hoops off. We're going to arrest people for walking too far from their house. Uh, you know, or whatever, which is, it didn't really happen here, but it happened in Israel, uh, among other places, Australia and, and, and Australia and right and New Zealand, um, and it's not as though when you make that kind of choice, that you're not privileging one set of facts over another, and that the other set of facts that you are now p- pushing by the wayside aren't going to have ancillary consequences. I mean, that's part of the point here is we've already heard this sort of anecdotally. We don't have like longitudinal or really serious data on it. But uh, is there going to be an upsurge in cancer because people, there were sort of four months where nobody could get a doctor's appointment to get checked out for things. People weren't getting colonoscopies. How many people are going to be diagnosed with colon cancer because for four or five months they couldn't get a colonoscopy? now i don't also, i don't know the answer yeah go ahead sorry i mean i mean we're just talking about the physical
1: impact of, of these things uh on, on our physical health the mental health dimension of of being shut in smoking more drinking more being sedentary not seeing people um being glued to screens screens that showed nothing but death and dying and then um uh uh, uh you know uh Police brutality and protests to it, and messages about how broken this country was. Um, the large-scale impact on that, in terms of our the national uh, mental health, and its impact on the radicalism of the politics that have emerged out of COVID, I think is that's something that 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 we 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 won't be able to sort of figure out for a long time.
0: Noah, and it, and from it, the beginning of the pandemic, one of your strongest lines of argument was people are just not going to follow the rules at some point people have to live their daily lives particularly people who you know do like work with their hands and their professions involve doing things for people in their houses on their cars you know whatever that they these are people who have to work interact with people to provide services to them in order to make a living and that and that all of this was sort of designed for people the entire lockdown regime was designed for people who were, who did not work in this way and that people were just going to ignore it and go about their daily lives. Um, and I'm sure that happened to, uh, to a really astonishing degree out of the sight of the, you know, of the monitor of everybody's hall monitors, um, you know, throughout the United States. So what is your sense like in, in, given that fact maybe it's it's not that you know like everybody stayed inside and went through this maybe the disproportionate effect of it only required a certain number of americans to follow the rules and then get hammered by the by the inevitable consequences teenagers in particular but we can
3: well i can't speak to the experience of teenagers i don't have them or know them um, but I can tell you my experience with the exception of the darkest days of the pandemic, March, 2020 through, um, mid June. Um, it was like that. Uh, I lived next to, at the time I lived next to an auto mechanic. I was in a very working class neighborhood. I lived outside of a, next to a, a firehouse and <clears throat> your experience was not mine. I did not see very pe- many people masked when I did, they were under their nose, Uh, There were plenty of places that you could go to to evade these kind of uh, restrictions. They were not enforced. They were not observed. They were mocked. Um, And it never really went back. And I've since moved even further out into the hinterland. And you wouldn't know there's a pandemic out here. It's over. Um, It is visible to the people who are our cultural cultural arbiters, the people for whom this sort of regime uh, is ubiquitous and enforced through social covenants. Uh, is that's their daily life. They have created for themselves what I believe to be an alternate alternate reality that does not reflect life outside of major metropolitan areas. It is all you see on television. It is all you see in major newspapers and it is perceived to be universal. Uh, and it's, it's really not, um, to the extent that's reflected in the statistics. I don't know. I couldn't tell you. And I, I I would believe that it probably suggests that there was, you know, more lackadaisical approach to this sort of thing resulted in better, worse outcomes out here. Um, but not to the extent that it's dominating the discussion. I mean, even today, what do we talk about? We talk about enforcing these rules on people who are already inclined to observe the rules. Um, it wasn't a concern, really. For the for the the to the extent that we would see them behave in ways that would change and alter the behavior of people who weren't observing these these uh, these mitigation measures, they weren't acting like that. They weren't engaged in persuasion efforts. They weren't traveling out into the the countryside to to shame and mock the, you know these people in the in the diners who uh, you know were Trump voters. They were just kind of they existed as a hypothetical. They were um, shamed from afar. And if there were the concern was such that we're talking about here that it was really genuine, um, then that behavior would not. We wouldn't have seen that kind of behavior. We would have seen something much more akin to a persuasion effort, uh, and we didn't. We saw scare tactics, and we saw mockery, and um, it had the the predictable effect. Now these people are probably not as health conscious <laughs> as as just about anybody else that we're talking about. They they have a different conception of how they can and should live their lives that doesn't comport with the standards that we would see in the Lancet or that the people who talk about the sort of thing on MSNBC. Um, and, but that's we have to accept that. And I'm, one of the things I always said is we're going to have to learn to accept that there are a certain number of people in this country that you're never going to reach. There are a certain number of people who will never get vaccinated. There are a certain number of people who are not going to be Healthful, who are not going to eat their vegetables, who are not going to get the flu vaccine, who are not going to do this sort of things that you who who aren't going to sit, you know, make sure that they're only watching television for twenty five percent of the week. It's not going to happen. And to the extent that we can live a a psychologically healthful life, we have to stop
2: obsessing over the lives of others. But but I agree with that, with one caveat, and that's that when when you when race is a factor in the disproportionate impact of anything in this country now. That is used as a as a weapon in policy making without attention to any sort of individual or personal responsibility and by that I mean if you look at how public health has dealt with the obesity crisis for example they' they're extremely careful not to bring race into it too often and when people have as an I look i I was I, I think Michelle Obama uh, was a good first lady in many regards. I really liked that she kind of targeted her Let's Move campaign for to young minority kids. She was like, you guys are the ones who got to get up and get moving. She encouraged people to you know, have more fresh fruit and vegetables. She did the nudging. Yes, she's a progressive nudger, but she was targeting the group that most needed to hear that. And they still didn't largely listen. And we see these debates in D.C. all the time about food deserts. So these markets go set up, but people don't come and buy the produce. I guess I worry, though policymakers use disproportionate outcomes to argue for kind of more radical policymaking and and radical you know certainly throwing money at problems without dealing with the source of the problem and and tackling that and i know individual physicians obviously are doing that with their patients but but for public health it's 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 a very useful tool when they want to kind of wield more power but I- they don't want to talk about The personal responsibility
3: i think you can say in retrospect i think in retrospect now that i now that i look back on it and it wasn't on and off like a light switch it was it was gradual but you can see the demarcation line where it was and it was in the summer of 2020 after the riots that was the all clear when public health officials said all right get out in the streets you know racism is a public health crisis a more pressing one in fact than COVID 19. um and again it it didn't happen overnight Nobody's as political or ideological as we are, obviously. So that wasn't the articulated philosophy. But that was when it stopped. That was when the mitigation measures no longer became priority number one. In fact, they were probably a little excessive in the minds of the people who were my neighbors.
1: I just want to say, to Noah's point, that uh, we should accept that there are always going to be people who are not going to listen to the... um, the, the 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 well-intentioned, most up-to-date advice on how to be healthy and uh, to take care of yourself and how to eat and how to cook and and how to avoid the virus and and what not to drink and all bad habits and all. Not only should we accept it, shouldn't we embrace it? The, uh, to me, the prospect of a world where everyone did follow these these rules and was compliant with, with, with this kind of, that is to me a dystopian nightmare. I mean, it's joyless. Sort, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's sort of what makes life worth living is that there are such people around that I have them in my lives. I am to some extent, one of those people, in fact, you know, we all, we all are to varying degrees. Um, and I think it's something that feeds into the resentment of the public health regime and the sort of general finger wagging or well, or well sort of point that you, that you brought up like, there, 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 there needs to be an understanding and an embrace of the fact that there is more to life than than hanging on to every last inch of it, uh, by virtue of small and big sacrifices.
0: I think in the in the largest sense, what this study shows, and what is, I think, again a major distinction between. Conservatives in America properly understood, and liberals in America properly understood, is that conservatives have learned very ruefully over time in a thousand different ways that every decision is a trade off. Everything you do closes, you know, it, it, not everything is binary, but you say yes or no at a given point. And when you say no, and therefore your your vector goes off to another side, there was a path that was not taken that would have been the yes path, and that could have had X, Y, and Z consequences. And then the no path, which takes you off the other way, has X, Y, and Z consequences. And that when we are debating public policy choices, particularly involving fiat, not legislation which sort of goes through an entire process of debate and homogenization and watering down and all of that in order to make it uh, you know something that a majority of people can agree with but fiat executive orders executive responsibility that every decision needs to be weighed against the trade-off the trade-off in at, with covid was we have to do all of this Because otherwise, millions and millions and millions of people are are going to die. And so that kind of undercut everything. But it is now 2021. In 2031, we are going to discover that some X number of people probably died because of the emergency decisions that we made. We don't know how many. It could be far less than we realize. And the excess number of deaths from COVID, which are now, you know, I know in the United States three to four times what they would have been otherwise, may always, you know, uh, you know, over overshoot whatever number it's determined resulted from people not getting colon cancer screenings in the summer of 2020 and therefore getting advanced colon cancer or like finally seeing it at a point at which it could no longer be dealt with or something like that. But the whole point is that every economic decision, every decision that government makes is a trade-off. And liberals hate the trade-off argument. They hate it like poison. And what they do with it is that they, quote, ring Lardner. You know, you say, what about the trade-off? And they say, shut up, he explained. That's the trade-off argument. Because the idea is, Everything that we want to do is going to be good. Don't you tell me what's going to be bad. Don't you tell me if we use this radical climate change philosophy that every person in West Virginia is going to be unemployed. I don't want to hear that. So I'm just going to ignore that you said it as opposed to, huh but here's how i'm going to argue that otherwise or when i go through my process i'm going to figure out something else that can be done with coal i, I mean i don't know don't, don't don't but i mean the trade-off is the heart of of the conservative idea about large-scale government action and it is the ign- it is the deliberate ignoring of the trade-off problem that is at the heart of liberal action i i just i, I want
1: to Uh, Add to that with a nakedly partisan uh, point, uh, which is that this uh, revelation about uh, the the health problems uh, incurred by the by the by the mitigation measures in the shutdown is yet another example of one of these uh, pandemic age things uh, that back when only conservatives were saying it was viewed as crazy. And now. People, now it's like, oh yeah, I guess I guess there's a point there. This includes, among other things, the lab leak theory of the of the origin of the virus, the idea that uh, Andrew Cuomo is not uh, some kind of hero, uh, the 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 assertion that defund the police uh, may have a
0: bad effect on crime, uh, and I'm sure there are more. Okay. I want to talk about the uh, defund the police thing in relation to what our next uh, segment. But before I do, um, you know, uh, there was a, a really baffling piece of economic news uh, yesterday, the day before yesterday that 4.3 million people quit their jobs in August. That's almost 3% of the workforce. Um, uh, and uh, in the course of that, only it looks like 700,000 job openings were filled when 4.3 million people quit their jobs. So uh, we we have a very weird thing, which is that people just stopped working in August. And our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group, who produces the DC Today newsletter, from which I'm about to quote, has an interesting analysis which expresses why it is that you should go and subscribe to the DCToday.com from the Bonson Group. Quote, I've spoken a lot about my strong concern around the labor participation rate and what it means to a society when an increasing number of people become structurally disengaged from the workforce. I am concerned by the overall rate's decline and stickiness near the low levels of 2013 to 2015 that we had begun to get off of pre-COVID. So the labor participation rate collapsed during the financial crisis and went lower and lower still in the years that followed before making a bit of a recovery in the years before COVID. It obviously collapsed during COVID, and yet even when all of the labor market improvements since then seem to have stayed anchored to that 2013 to 2015 level, here is the big concern. Uh, there is a better result for people ages 25 to 54 but there is a new low in the overall labor participation rate which is getting stickier by the month when you look at the whole picture of people employed ages 16 and up which means that there is an extra problem of labor participation for those ages 16 to 24 and those 55 and up in other words Two vulnerabilities are clearly forming, both with societal risks I truly hate to think about. One is the declining amount of work from young entry-level workers in the economy, and the second is those at a midlife position increasingly giving up and exiting the workforce entirely. This is the kind of analysis you can get on a daily basis from the DCToday.com uh, weekly analysis of a similarly high level at DividendCafe.com. Go to divi- the DividendCafe.com to subscribe to these two newsletters. From David Bonson and the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, so uh, Abe mentioned defund the police and... Um, there's an interesting uh craze this week or over the last couple of weeks, a craze that started really last summer, went away and now is back. It's the David Shore craze. It's it's David Shore mania. It's people are pulling David Shore from from his limousine like the Beatles in a Hard Day's Night and screaming and yelling and going crazy. David Shore being the 30-year-old data analyst who broke his, um, who sort of like, uh, you know, got his sea legs during the Obama 2012 campaign and was famously fired during the George Floyd protest summer for pointing out, literally fired from his um, liberal uh, political consulting group gig for tweeting out a study by Omar Wasau of, of Princeton, himself, by the way, a person of color about how when Democrats stress sort of like anti-police or, you know, issues or that can maybe get them tagged as not being sort of anti-crime enough, um, they in general lose a couple of points off their vote totals, uh, you know, in aggregate over time. Uh, Shore tweeted this out, didn't write anything about it, was fired by his firm, And then, because of his firing, started getting interviewed by people, particularly Eric Levitz in New York Magazine. And now, a year later, there has been this kind of boomlet. Ezra Klein did a 22,000 million word piece about David Shore and his brilliance uh, in in the Sunday New York Times this week. And basically, David Shore says Democrats are heading uh, into a catastrophic calamity because by... By privileging the ideas of their most progressive members and the elites that talk on Twitter and stuff like that over the real kitchen sink issues of uh, ordinary people, and in this case, he also means white working class people, uh, they are they are walking off a cliff in terms of political participation and results of elections going forward over the next. Ten years. Obviously, this is catnip to people like us, and is catnip also to a certain type of uh, non crazy Democrat who is functioning in a slightly different, you know, mindset and a kind of Clintonite mindset. Um, so, but it, so his stuff is very interesting. Noah, you have some real problems with it, but I think they're more sociologically driven than they are that you question his actual findings or or am i am i misinterpreting you
3: no i think they're both um <clears throat> first that i suppose the sociological aspect of this <laughs> is that i think his popularity is rather easy to explain insofar as as you said he's 30 years old um which places him at the very tail end of the millennial generation, early generation Z. And he is uh, saying to Democrats older than he uh, that the generation of which he is a part is terrible. Um, People love that. Older people love to hear how their generation is great and the other guys stink, especially the younger kids. They are awful. That's just human nature. And um, that's I think, explains quite a bit of the allure Um, Second is much more policy oriented. For example, we now have this word popularism, um, dominating the discussion among Democrats and liberals talking amongst themselves, who recognize they're in something of a self made bind. Um, And, you know, in so far as the last time you spent a whole lot of time thought thinking about how you could be popular, you have to go back to high school uh which which will actually give you a good perspective on what he's talking about. So he's he he identifies popularism insofar as it's identifiable as polling. Polling data suggests that you know Democrats should pursue policies that people like and don't not pursue policies that people don't. Seems simple enough. And obviously something like defund the police isn't popular in polling. So Democrats shouldn't pursue it. However, what he says are there things that are popular, for example Um, That Democrats should pursue, and he said this directly, I think two days ago, is a federal jobs guarantee. Federal jobs guarantee polls real well among working class voters. That's exactly who Democrats want to get back. They should have included it in the reconciliation package. They should be talking it up when pressed as to what those jobs would be. uh, He identified just a sort of permanent census taker. Uh, which to me suggests that he hasn't really thought this through because the wages and supervisory capacity of that kind of a job aren't competitive in the current job market. Um, Which brings me to my biggest problem, which is that he identifies popularity in one metric, which is polling data. And that is not how you identify that which is popular. A federal jobs guarantee has been floated forever it was floated in legislation. It has been retailed by progressives since I've been alive in conscience and probably far earlier than that. And by every metric we have available, it is not popular because it has not been pursued in any way that would translate into, into law. It has, it, it has failed to jump off the starting block every single time it's been pursued. And if you refuse to see that as an indication of unpopularity, your theory of popularism is narrow to the point of myopia and hopelessly flawed.
0: Okay. And, you know, that's a very good point, particularly about the federal jobs guarantee. Uh, the one time that there was a really significant national debate over that was the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill in the late 70s, which went down to defeat and pretty ignominious defeat. And that was. That was really a kind of summa moment, um, the last moment before Reaganomics actually sort of took over and said, uh, no, you know what, we should go in a radically other direction and return money from government to people in the form of 30% uh, decline in tax rates over time. And let's see how that works in terms of employment. And you know how it worked? Like crazy, it worked. and 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 so uh that was a kind of you know that was the end of that for a couple of generations when of course people forget the lessons of the past and are willing to start taking up ideas that were discredited by by real world experience but i think you do david shore a disservice not that i care you know how he does in his own party um but by by saying what democrats should do they should do things that are popular and not do things that are unpopular he is saying something that is shockingly controversial within his own coalition because the things that the chattering class want to do are unpopular and we're back to shut up. He explained, right? We are back to, well, um, we're back to David Shore saying, don't talk about defunding the police. Talk about things that are going to help ordinary people, And, you know, seem to be contributors to uh, an improvement in their lives. And you're not allowed to say that in the circles in which you travel. If you tweet anything that even hints at that, you get fired. That was the point of his experience. And so all he's saying in some wild boar, you know, large boar thing is, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does not reflect the sensibilities, opinions, ideas and voting preferences of Democrats, let alone all Americans, and you are, you are surrendering the party's ideology, ideological structure to her and people like her, and the consequences are going to be incredibly dire.
3: I don't have a problem with advocating unpopular policies. I advocate plenty of unpopular policies. I advocate a, a, an extroverted American foreign policy. But you are not really a like. political. I consultant. advocate you know shoring up the, the you, social safety net, privatization. Nobody likes that.
0: You are not a political consultant, David Shore. Is a political consultant. His purpose as a professional is to get Democrats elected to office in sufficient numbers that they could control the legislative agenda and the executive branch of the United States. And under those conditions, he is saying if you advocate X, not you, Noah Rothman, not the intellectual class.
3: I get it. And but there's here's a Democratic perspective as to why that's a flawed presumption, that the notion that you can rely on popularity as though it's a static metric and not shifting uh, based on the whims of an electorate that is not ideological and doesn't follow policy and doesn't really understand policy. Benji Sarlin over at NBC News noted accurately that the bailout of the auto uh, companies in 2009 was wildly unpopular and arguably responsible for Barack Obama's reelection three years later. Because the policy changed, the the, the, the popularity yes. the popularity of the policy changed once it was enacted. No,
0: no. Look, um, I'm not going to argue it wasn't right.
3: popular at the time. No, when no, you no. Look, I'm not going to argue philosophy on popularity. Okay. You're you're building a foundation on sand.
0: But there was a very clear the reason that I don't think that's a great example is the auto industry employed close to a million people. You bailed it out even if it was wildly unpopular, you were at least doing something where you could say, I am doing this in order to preserve the jobs of a million people. If you defund the police, what you're saying is up is down. The things that we want to do to prevent crime are actually causing murders, the murders of black people. So they should all just go away. And then, What's going to happen? More black people are going to get murdered because there are no cops. Anyway, I'm just saying, Christine, go ahead.
2: Well, I think this is one of the reasons that explains Shore's popularity. It's not he's kind of a Cassandra that more moderate minded democrats need and it has to come from within it can't come from without because the critique he's offering is quite stunning and what he got fired for initially was that the study he was fired for was comparing peaceful protests sort of nonviolent peaceful protests with violent protests and he and he said look if we look at the Previous civil rights protest era, when things turned violent, it was bad for Democrats. When they were peaceful, there there wasn't that same effect, and that got him fired because the Democratic Party is being pushed by its left flank, as we've discussed many times, particularly on issues of identity politics and wokeness, to be much more radical and to endorse violence. And we saw many people in the in the left coalition absolutely call for violence in the streets uh, during the post George Floyd summer. What he is saying to uh, to. People who are running for office is this makes everybody feel really excited, but it's really bad for the average voter. And the difference is it's the white, highly educated voters. In a coalition with the Democrats that are pushing this, they are more radical on most issues than even the African-Americans who are part of that multiracial coalition. And particularly, as you say, John, on the issue of defunding the police, we saw this many times. African-Americans in high crime neighborhoods saying, stop saying that. We want cops. We just want them to be better trained and not to use excessive force. So he's the Cassandra that that those all those people who Joe Biden actually got to the polls in the last election Need and I think his popularity is almost. I mean, he's serving the same function that Mansion and Cinema are doing in the Senate to sort of block the extreme, and that's why they like him. Um, whether or not that's going to be successful, I don't know. Those suburban white, highly educated progressive, uh, particularly ladies, are are a powerful force in the Democratic coalition right now.
1: You know, it, the response though to to his criticism isn't isn't purely, uh, sh- shut up. Uh, he explained it's also. Um, there, there there's an effort to try to massage and finesse uh what they believe in to sort of I'll make it go away that well the violent protests aren't really violent um you know that's your that's just a, a sort of a, a framing issue you know and um uh, defund doesn't really mean defund you know that's not really what we're talking about so there's this, this sense that like you know to 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 take the 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 temperature of the of the country on these issues is to buy in to a misrepresentation of of democratic ideas.
0: That's why I would really like people when when it's up I think later today to read Will Riley's The Whiteness of Wokeness piece from our woke the threat issue because it details the extent to which ideas about race in the United States and the promulgation of legislative remedies and ideas and all this are not being done by black people they are being done by leftist white people who are incorporating this into a radically anti-american understanding of our entire political system and are in effect using race uh in a in a weird way you know as a kind of minstrelsy like they are you know they're they're putting they're putting shoe black on their faces in order to claim that the ideas that they want to you know they they are preaching that are literally sort of radically socialistic or basically anti-american and anti-democratic are important and morally uh, justified because they are speaking in the voice and name and spirit of black people and it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty startling argument i need to do i need to do a spot here uh about raycon these fantastic uh uh earbuds um that my my daughter uses i use um they they're they are beautiful black improved rubber oil look and feel um whether you use them to pump up wind down work or workout Raycons have become my go-to for on-the-go audio with their new everyday earbuds you get three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best with just the right amount of bass pure mode is for podcast listening. balanced mode is for rock and heavy rock bass mode is for hip-hop edm and reggae the all-new awareness mode means you can sort of shut it all off and listen to your surroundings eight hours of playtime, 32-hour battery life, built-in mic. You can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button, and they started half the price of other premium audio brands but sound just as good and have a 45-day happiness guarantee. So right now, commentary podcast listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash commentary. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary to save 15% on Raycons, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N dot com slash commentary no i'm sorry i interrupted you if there was something
3: yeah um to just add. to fill in the <clears throat> what you were talking about regarding the racial dynamics there tom edsel's piece in the new york times this morning which is one of 14 pieces on popularism it it has overtaken the debate on the left um which is indicative i think of the pot that they find themselves boiling in but anyway he you know sure is quoted at length talking about the extent to which the democratic coalition is shedding black and hispanic members uh who are gravitating towards re- republicans as a working class coalition increasingly uh, and talks about how white liberals are increasingly defined uh, defining the party's image much to the will to will riley's part and it's turning off non-white conservative democrats and pushing them against us to which gmail Bowie responds is new york times columnist um liberal uh progressive african-american uh, says that my problem is I don't think Shore and his allies are being forthright about what it would take to stem this tide and reverse this trend. And he says that that Shore's analysis suggests that, quote, anti-black prejudice is so strong within the Democratic coalition that a shift in rhetoric wouldn't uh, you know sh- change the, uh, the problem. Then he wants uh, Shore to be much more explicit about what he means leadingly. Quote, it seems to me as if they're talking around the issue rather than being upfront about the path they want to take, unquote. So the implication there is rather clear. David Shore is channeling the racist elements in the Democratic Party. He wants the Democratic Party to appeal to the racist elements within it and to shed the policy preferences of progressives is to concede the fact that Democrats will have a racist element within their coalition. And that's unacceptable to him. He's being very coy about it, but it's not hard to unpack what he means. Um, and that's, you know, part of the problem plaguing the party is that they don't count in this opposition to their ideas, preferring instead to attribute them to latent racial animus, um, which is an easy rhetorical tactic, but also the obstacle that you're going to find when you're just talking about popularity. And that's part of something that I'm actually quite sympathetic towards. I don't care if you don't think Social Security should be shorn up with privatization of accounts. I don't give a crap. I think you're wrong. And I think I will argue against you whether you think that's popular or not. And Jamil Bowie thinks the same thing. He thinks you're anathema because you don't believe what I believe. I think you probably have a poisoned heart. Right. And I don't care what you like and what you're popular and what you think is popular. I will argue against you and impose my will upon you. But that's not an argument.
0: But Jamil Bowie is not making an argument.
3: No, he's not. I'm making his argument for him. David Shore says –
0: David Shore, Rui Tejera, and others quoted in Ensel's piece say – Support for the Democratic coalition among working-class Hispanics and working-class Blacks has declined by double-digit numbers over the last eight years. That's a hard fact, or at least you know if if we can take polling, it's a hard fact. That's a hard fact that cannot be argued with. And Jamel Bowie says, "Shut up." Says, "Prove to me you're not a racist." That's not an argument. That is an effort to suppress a conversation because. What Shore and others are bringing up is a decline of support among minorities. And then the idea is, well, really? I mean, you're only making this argument because you want to support racist w- whites. And they're making an exactly other argument. And he's trying to use the kryptonite that he has in the Democratic Party, which is saying somebody is a racist which will, you know, get you fired if an email emerges that says that you said something insulting on a private text chain with but, somebody about a player rep if you're the, you know, if you're a, the coach of the of uh, if you're a coach of the Jaguars or whoever the hell John Gruden was a coach of like 10 years later your your life is over. Jamel Bowie's trying to do that to David Shore implicitly but, by saying you keep going this way and we are we're not going to stop saying that you're not a racist for arguing that Black and Hispanics deserting the Democratic
2: Party is a problem the party needs to deal with. But this is getting harder to do. We saw this with the with the Trump numbers among Hispanic voters in the last election, right? The attempt to kind of paint the Cubans in Miami as actually white. We see this with Asian-American voters and Asian-American parents of students who who get into uh, high-achieving colleges and high-achieving competitive high schools. They're white. But this attempt to whitewash minorities who don't follow the identity politics line cannot hold because there are too many of them. There are too many of them standing up and saying, I don't agree with you. And it's not because of the color of my skin. It's because I don't agree on principle. And the Jamel Buoys of the world are actually creating this really negative feedback loop for themselves where they think they're just schooling the the outliers when, in fact, they're talking to the radical middle, the, the, the middle, which is becoming radicalized. Because if you're an African-American working class voter in the Democratic Party and you think you have to read and subscribe to Ibram X. Kendi's theories, you're not going to be in a happy place.
0: OK, look. When running a business, yes, I am moving on to our final spot. When running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding determinations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel any you didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E dot slash commentary spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary so i'm afraid i gotta cut this off uh uh thank you all for listening it's my 19th anniversary and my daughter's 15th birthday so i have many things i have to do today and thank you for in advance for all of your good wishes and thoughts and everything and for a christina noah i'm john Podhoritz. keep the candle burning.